0: I'm Craig Parkinson, and this is the Two Shot Podcast. of the kettle on, and let's dive in. Only six more times I'll be asking you that. But right now I'm asking it again. How are you? Is everything good? Are you well? Good. So here we are. The last six episodes of the Two Shot podcast after a six year run. And we're going out on a high. We've got some great guests coming up to you before Christmas. I think you're going to like it. I really hope you do. Um, We've got actors, we've got writers, we've got a comedian. And that's all I'm going to tell you. So each week you're going to have new, fresh, interesting conversations. But then the finale, the very last two-shot podcast is going to be something special. It's going to feature two people that you've heard before. And I'm not going to say anything else because I'm recording it. This week um, I'm jumping in the car and going somewhere and I can't tell you where, I'm very sorry. Um, But let's get into it, so that's where we are now. I'm recording this in my living room at the moment, but last week I went to London, I went to the two-shot spiritual home in London, Soho, to Maison Bateau. big shout out to Tanya, who... Over the years, has always, let us record there when she can. Guests like it, we hear the chink of China. Teas being stirred, cakes being eaten. But more importantly, we get down to fantastic conversations with people. Uh, so last week, I went to go and meet the brilliant author, writer, uh, journalist... Mr. Neil Forsyth. Now, if the name doesn't spring to mind uh, any of his work, let me tell you, this is the guy from Dundee that created the fantastic character, an entrepreneur and cheeseburger van owner, Bob Servant, brilliantly brought to life by Brian Cox. If you watched... The Gold recently with past TSP guests Jack Loudon. That's Neil's work. Mark Bonner is a past TSP guest. He starred in the groundbreaking series, I will say groundbreaking, award-winning series, Guilt, uh, which is all available on iPlayer now. There's three seasons. You've got no excuse on these cold winter nights not to get stuck into Guilt first, then move on to Gold. And then go out, and buy the new Bob Servant book that we speak about, and tune in to the radio show. Anyway, there is loads of ground that we cover in this conversation. Neil is fantastic company, as ever. Um, it was slightly emotional, I must admit, to start the uh, the last run of sex knowing that I've got pretty much all but one lined up and there's loads of people that I just couldn't fit in because of time restraints because we've got six episodes to get out and then it's done. Um, I'm not going to wang on too much because I might cry. Um, So let's go to Maison Bateau, let's go to London, Soho, and let's meet Mr. Neil Forsyth. This is the first of the last of the Two Shot Podcast. I'll see you at the end. And here we are uh, in London, the spiritual home of the Two Shot Podcast. You may hear... Rubbish trucks outside because they're cleaning up stinky Soho, uh and I'm here with uh my early morning guest, Mr. Neil Forsyth. How are you?
1: I'm very well. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for coming this early. i just it's good to be
1: here. I'm very aware that your magnificent podcast is winding down. Well, you're yeah. spunking one of your last
0: guests. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, for a writer, I mean, I don't know if I would choose that that choice <laughs> of word. Your,
1: uh, This is like, um, it's like it's Parky's last show. Yeah. Everyone's expecting Billy Connolly and you bring on the crankies. Well,
0: uh, we've got stories about the crankies. I'd I'd love to see Everybody's got stories about the crankies, I'm sure you have. It's a (laughs)
1: two-parter.
0: Now, usually I start in a a certain way about um, choosing questions, but I'm going to start differently. I thought I'd start with the joke. That's a a ballsy move, isn't it? I'm reading a book at the moment by Bob Cryer about the genius of of Barry Cryer. Mm -hmm. And there's there's a tenuous link, which we'll go on to. So should we start with a joke? Let's do it. Let me get my readers on right there. So here we go. A man says to the doctor, he says, I think my wife is going deaf, but I don't want to mention it because it might seem tactless and insensitive. Is there a way I can find out without her knowing? And the doctor replies, there is, and it's quite easy. Choose a moment when she has a back to you. Say something in a normal voice, and if she doesn't answer, move a few steps closer and say it again. Now, keep going until you get an answer, and then you'll get a good idea about the state of a hearing. So, the man comes home from work, and he sees his wife standing with her back to him in the kitchen. He says, what's for dinner? No answer. So he moves a few steps closer. What's for dinner? Again, Nothing. He moves in again. What's for dinner? Still nothing. By now, he's practically right behind us. so he tries one more time. What's for dinner? She turns around and says, for the fourth time, chicken! Come on! <laughs> is that a way to start a podcast or what? The genius of Barry Cryer. And the reason I started with him is I've just, I'm just about to start the chapter where he begins working with Morecambe and Wine. Yes. Now, where did your love of Morkman Wise first start?
1: Well, so firstly, I know Bob Cryer, Barry's son, who wrote that book. Mm. It's a great book. Bob's a good pal of mine. And um, I met Barry when I was researching Eric Ernie and me. But no, Morkman Wise, I mean, obviously the shows were fantastic and it was brilliant working with that material. But my way in was actually Eddie Braben Mm. was the writer. So I read Eddie Braben's book, um, the book what I wrote, which is, fantastic it's really good fun but it's it's really interesting about the writing process as well he's very honest about the the challenges he faced yeah so i just found his book really interesting and i thought could that be a way into telling the story of and wise through the eyes of the writer and and the, you know things good dramatic things happen which is important as well yeah that relationship so yeah i loved doing that it was it was a really important step for me it was the first one hour i did more drama-ish if you like um, so it was um a very happy memory of making
0: those. But there was a there was a certain time of, of, quite a while ago, because this was like, what, 2017? Mm, yeah, probably around that, yeah. And there was a tendency to have sort of well-known comedians playing sort of past comedians, but yeah. you didn't do that. You You sort of, you chose to have incredible actors who had sort of comic chops, but also deep, Dramatic chops as well. Yeah. That. Were you ever forced into, or were we think so, uh, X, Y, and Z should be playing sort of these iconic sort of comic characters?
1: No, I don't think so. Probably because the nature of the, the script, that it was it, it was quite dramatically led, I think. Yeah. And it needed to feel that depth and nuance of performance. And also we cast it, so we had tapes to show them. So we said, look, how can you not cast mm. X, Y, or B? Sort of thing. Yeah. So it was... Um, the, the, yeah, Mark Bonner played out at Morecambe. Um,
0: Absolute blinder. Yeah. I mean, both him and Neil, Neil together. School, yeah. The partnership that we never knew we needed on telly, really, <laughs> yeah, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was yeah. brilliant.
1: Yeah, they were. They, they were, And the Stephen Tomkerson said, yeah, yeah, it, was,
0: it, was, absolutely. it was just,
1: it was brilliant. I really, it's one, you know, you know what it's like sometimes watching stuff you've done can be a bit awkward or can remind you of things that you wish you'd done differently. But that is something I can just watch because I think it was well realised, brilliantly acted, but it was just a very happy experience for me as well.
0: Are you good at going back and do you go back and watch? Not
1: hugely, to be honest, no. I think I was, you know, such a... Like Bob Servant, for example, was the first television show I ever made. Now, the first episode of Bob Servant was the first script I'd ever written. Was it? Yeah. yeah, so I mean, and I think that's both thrilling and exciting... But also, I think sometimes you can tell that when you, when I watch it I was just a I was a very raw developing writer, and there was, there's great performances in there and things I like and i, I you know I enjoy watching the show because remembering making it back in my hometown of Dundee and things, but I definitely can see my progression as a writer through things I made, which makes it often not wholly comfortable watching stuff you've you've done before, and yeah. I'm kind of more interested in what I'm working on now anyway
0: yeah of course um and I want to go back to Bob servant because I think that'll probably. Be- bring us to sort of where we are now. But let's, can we go back to Dundee and talk about growing up there?
1: Dundee was a fantastic city. Um, My parents are still there. I'm there all the time. I was there last weekend. And um, it was a really, you know, when you get older, you appreciate more where you grew up. And I grew up in Broughty Ferry, which is a lovely part of Dundee, down beside the river. Kind of idyllic childhood, really. Going to the football, playing football, cycling everywhere. And I think for me, it was about, quite quickly realising I wanted to be a writer, you know. A, a, a how,
0: how quick, at what sort of early age was that? It's
1: just what I was good at, you know, it's what I was good at at school and also that kind of storytelling thing, like, you know, growing up in Dundee, you need to have a little bit about you. So you could either be hard as nails, brilliant at football, or you could tell jokes and stories and so on. And it was the latter where I felt my strength's Yeah, <laughs> And uh, that was um, something I just enjoyed doing, telling stories in the playground and at football grounds and things like that. And, 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 you know, when I was younger, we used to sit having our tea as a family at a brother and sister, and, and um, we're all sitting there. And then cut to two hours later, and my dad's doing the dishes, and I've still got all my dinner in front of me because I've just been <laughs>
0: too busy blathering. Yeah, yeah.
1: So it's that, and 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 then at school, I was just good, I was good at English, and I was encouraged by you know, a couple of really good
0: teachers. And well, that's it. That's the important thing. Just being encouraged.
1: Usually, yeah, yeah. And I, you know, wasn't and. Yeah, it Mr. Ferry. He was called. He came in and did the kind of the class that I was in, and he was just he was just he was just really interesting. He would just come in and say, "Right today, we're just going to do something completely different. Well, let's just do a court case. Right, you're the lawyer, you're the accused, and you just have to act the parts and quickly write something." And he was just a kind of inspiring guy and very encouraging of me. So um, that was always what I enjoyed doing. I wrote for a football fanzine when I was young, and that and you know see my name in print at 13 and things. It was. It was what I wanted to do, but probably similar to you, Craig, growing up provincial, provincial city pre-internet. That stuff just felt laughably impossible. The idea that oh, that
0: could be a career completely out of reach. Yeah. yeah, especially I don't know if you knew. I certainly didn't know anybody of my age around Blackpool that was that was making a living, no, doing what they wanted to do as an actor at all. Were there anybody you looked up to? Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, yeah. Brian. So, so I used to get the Dundee Courier. And the Dundee Courier back in those days was like the adverts. The small ads were on the front page. That was the, the that was the model. It was very traditional newspaper. And uh, but then within there'd be they'd kind of almost slightly um, grudgingly look at cultural issues here and there, but always through a local focus. So you'd have so Brian Cox would be in it. You see, so Brian is from Dundee, and he there'd be photos of Brian seeing this new film he was in or a new play he was in. Um, and then also remember Ricky Ross and Deacon Blue. You know, yeah. Ricky's mum and my gran were, were best pals. Oh, were they? they were the same block of flats and stuff. So you, so that was just the fact people from uh, Dundee had gone and done a creative career that had kind of resonated and they'd made a, a living out of it, first and foremost, but also, you know, they'd succeeded, felt, did definitely give you a bit of possibilities, yeah. even though there was different areas that I was interested in, just that creativity, like, oh, maybe there's, a, maybe there's a path to that one way or another. So you kind of cling on to those those things a little bit when you're younger.
0: So, what was the next step for you? The next logical step was it to was it to stay in Dundee and go to university there?
1: I went to university in Edinburgh. So I, I kind of um, so I went to school and went to university and I came to London for a bit. I did all these things on the surface, but, but it was it was kind of things that I thought I should probably do. But behind it all, I was I was just always writing. But I didn't have the confidence to sort of voice it. Like, this is what I want to do. I didn't do English literature at university. for oh, didn't Rhodes, No, I should have done. But again, I didn't quite have the confidence to say, to be that specific and that clear in your ambition sort of thing. That I want to be a writer because yeah. you feel that you're 99% setting yourself up for failure, really. So Christ, what comes next sort of thing. So I... Um, but I just always wrote, always wrote in the background, creative writing, but I also wrote for football magazines in the early days of football websites. Um, I was always writing. And then, so what I did was in my kind of early 20s, I went back to Edinburgh and I decided that, I, I almost made the decision that I'm not going to do a job that could be a, a what you'd see as a conventional career. For example, I'm not going to go and take a graduate position somewhere in a job that's maybe got just enough creativity in it that I could get my head around doing that for 40 years. So I just went back and worked in a pub because I thought, enjoy that, uh, enjoy speaking to people at the bar. And I think this is the kind of work, particularly working at night, that I could maybe keep trying to push this writing thing during the day.
0: And also the amount of sort of rich characters that you meet that walk yeah. into a pub. I mean...
1: Hugely, it's yeah. It's
0: starting to write itself. Oh, there's
1: lines from guys you know that drank in the pubs that I worked in in Dundee and Edinburgh that still go into my shows now oh, really? oh 100% there's a line that I put in um every show I write okay and this was a guy that used to come in the afternoon to the pub in Dundee and every day I'd say how are you getting on and every day I'd say you see it all son you see it all <laughs> and I find it so funny that he said that on a daily basis <laughs> as if he'd never said it before and if it just summed up his whole life outlook. So, anyway, I've just put that line into all my shows. So, in the gold, in the first series, uh, Tom Cullen's character, John Palmer, goes to the guy that puts the hallmarks on in Sheffield and yeah. says to the guy, How are you doing? And the guy says, Oh, you see it all, John. You see it And actually, that actor delivers it so brilliantly.
0: He was fantastic <laughs> yeah, in that, yeah. I must admit.
1: So, so, yeah, you find you, you're just speaking to people and chatting and, and hearing kind of stories and things. And so I, that's what I did. And I, I, so it was kind of all
0: or nothing, really. How, 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 long, how long was the pub work for?
1: Oh, like well into my twenties. I mean, I kind of, and you know, looking back now, you think, God, that's so young, but it's not young when you're, if you're 26, 27, your contemporaries are maybe starting to progress in careers, having families, things like that. So you do, you know, there was definitely lots of moments where I thought, God, is this going to, is it going to work? But I just knew it's what I wanted to try and do. And it was, because I didn't have any qualifications. It was, it was just this slow meandering way in where I Started off doing football match reports for the Scottish newspapers. That was the first writing ever, which was like two, 300 words on Ross County, St Mirren, things like that. And I loved that and learned a lot about writing. You know, you, you, when you've got 200 words, every word has to count. Yeah, Constantly editing yourself. And, and you're writing the story of the game and you've got limited time to do it. If there's a last minute goal, you're screwed. You have to start again. And, you know, so I really enjoyed that. And then through newspapers, I got into the kind of men's mags back in the... Back in the day, where they still sort of had articles, Maxim and FHM and things, and then from there, I, I just started doing books and worked my way from there.
0: Was there a, was there an end game plan? Did you know that? Because you sounded very happy just writing those two or three hundred words yeah, yeah. Uh, for football, and then obviously it moved on to features for those yeah for those magazines that we don't see. Second anymore. top, second top, <laughs> second self. top shelf. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so was it going to be? I wanted to be a screenwriter, I wanted to see my stuff on the telly, I wanted to see my stuff at the cinema, or was it was it novels that, that were the...?
1: Um, probably. I mean, I think it was slightly levels of audacity, like when you come from that sort of background, where I thought, well, maybe I could do that, but I certainly couldn't do Five Steps Later, but maybe I could do a match report, you know? But, I mean, I remember I remember a moment when I was... I don't know how old I would have been, not particularly old, but, but Cracker made a big impact on me. And
0: um God, it made a big Jimmy, impact on everybody, Jimmy didn't McAllen. it?
1: Have you worked with Jimmy at all?
0: No, no, not at all. Me I mean, even when I was growing up, when when Robbie Coltrane was on yeah. telly doing that, I don't think we'd ever seen a character like that. No. And then when Bobby Carlisle came on, that was a, such a huge impact. To this yeah. day, I know now when you know when you see the top fifty shows of yeah. of all time in the UK. It, it's there. Yeah. It, it, it it's will all, to, yeah. It will always be there because it had such a profound effect yeah. and inspiration for writers and actors and just directors, you Just know. brilliant. Just yeah. so
1: good and so such a rich character and funny as well when he... And be,
0: flawed. Yeah, 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 yeah. Super flawed. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And unashamedly so. Yeah. But I, so there was a moment when I was watching that when I was, I don't know how old I would have been, not particularly old, maybe around 20, and um, there was a episode where Fitz's mum had died and... Um, he went, he hadn't shown any overt emotion and then he went to her house and I think it was a calendar or a poster on her wall had come away at the corner and he lifted it to put it back and there's a blue tack there with her fingerprint on it and that's when he showed emotion. And I just thought, I had this real moment of like, someone's written that, you know, someone's thought about that moment and how to convey it and there's not even any dialogue and, you know, to, how to capture that human experience through a kind of microcosm wow. and, and just thinking, Christ, that just sort of, blew me away and and so so i think writing television was probably always the hope the hopefully ends ambition but it's, that's a standing start that's yeah. ludicrous whereas i could get my way in through these other areas because
0: it's one thing writing you two three hundred words for football because you're writing what you're saying yeah so it's all factual but i'm starting to think that what the confidence is building through writing the football stuff and the the factual sort of features. Yeah. For that when when was it right? I'm gonna start writing what's going on in my own head and my own heart from there. If I'm
1: what? honest, that would probably been guilt. To be honest, really? Yeah, I think that so. I think so. I mean, it was like you know, I was writing. I wrote a book called Other People's Money. My first book was about a credit card fraudster called Elliot Castro, a young Scottish guy. And that was there's definitely some of my childhood and younger experiences that went into his story in that book. Um, and then I wrote a couple of novels, um, which I'm very pleased with, but, you know, it, it's they're, they're very much their, their own escapist stories in themselves. And then Bob Servant obviously came through the books, and there's a lot of my voice and background in that. Um, and there's so, so, look, I mean, everything you write as a writer, you're in it. Every character you create, you're in that character to some degree. But in terms of really finding my, I guess, um, the voice without kind of sounding pretentious about it, and and feeling like that feels like a distillation of what I had in my head on the screen. I do think guilt would probably be the the first one of them.
0: How nerve wracking was it to sort of pass over a first draft of something for the first time? And is there someone that you always let read sort of first, or does it go? Well, my to wife's
1: the... my script editor. So, oh, yeah, is she yeah, really? Yeah, yeah, Rihanna. So she's she's amazing. So she's my script editor. So that's uh, you know there can be some tense dinners. <laughs> <laughs> but by and large, it's very, very um, positive and productive. And she's always read my work. Right back at the beginning, uh, Bob Servant was a guy called Owen Bell at BBC Scotland. They got past one of the books and got in touch. And that's seismic that he did that. And, and i eternally grateful for him. And he was great in guiding me into the TV process that you know I didn't know anything about. Um, so i think just doing something gave me the confidence to do the next thing and it's it's unbelievable how much confidence is part of it isn't it when you're young working in the creative industries yeah. and anything it really is it's like you don't you and and the thing is part of that's um logical and correct you know people talk a lot about a uh, kind of imposter syndrome and i understand that and i understand people that um might have that but for whatever reason but with me i think that what I had in the early part of my career was actually an entirely logical and accurate <laughs> recognition of the fact I didn't really know what I was doing. It wasn't imposter syndrome; it was just it was a, a very accurate appraisal of my of my understanding of the system and my ability. So it's like I actually think that you've got you've got to embrace your flaws a little bit, yeah. right, particularly early on, and, and be aware of them. And I think it, it's much more important to be an improving writer than a good writer, you know. It's about trajectory and commitment to learn and commitment to get better and put well, the work I in I think that's the same
0: with acting right. as well all the time because there's a, I'm sure you've seen it all the time, you can drink <coughs> your coffee, it doesn't matter. Thanks, it's kind of quite nice to hear that. But, you know, there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance and if it, I think if it tips over into that, it's like, well, we're just sort of, Lifelong learners, really. I think in this, and I think that helps us progress. Whether it's being in front or behind the camera. How do
1: you feel differently now going onto a set than the first time you went on a set?
0: Um, That I deserve to be there. Yeah, in 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 a in a very confident way, but hopefully in an inclusive way um, to everybody that's there. Whether again in front or behind the camera. Never, I'm here. It's just like, great, we're all here. Yeah. And we're all put, hopefully, pushing in the same direction. Very rarely. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get your IMDb up. <laughs> <laughs> it's not about me, <laughs> now, Now, um, earlier on, you mentioned um, people who, when you were young, that you saw in the local paper, yeah. one of them was Brian Cox. Yeah. So how, for those that don't know, we do need to talk about uh, right. Bob Servant yeah. and also where your collaboration, because there's been a few um, with Brian Cox yeah. start. And when you were writing Bob Servant, there's loads of questions there. Did, did you have him in, in, in mind? Because obviously when people who know Bob Servant now, and yeah. you say it, that's that, like, don't think of Mickey Mouse, don't think of Bob Servant, Brian Cox yeah. comes in, yeah.
1: take the last question first.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, so it was funny when I wrote, um so Bob Servant is,
0: is a yeah we've got to explain yeah, sorry,
1: it oh god I mean that's that take the rest of the podcast <laughs> in, in short he's a fictional character I created first in a series of books where he's um a Dundee cheeseburger van Svengali that's how he describes himself and he's uh, a local man done good and sees himself as a great kind of hero of the people if you like so but the first book I wrote um Bob Servant book which was when I was exchanging emails with spammers, genuine emails where I was pretending to be this old slightly confused guy in Dundee and, and then I wrote his memoirs, Hero of Dundee and a few other books. But, but with the first book I wrote about Bob Servant, I did um, Scottish book festivals, usually to like five five blokes, you know, and uh I did um but every Scottish book festival I did, almost invariably someone would say, Well I'm from Dundee and that's why I bought the book. Someone got it for Christmas. And um, this has got to be based on Charlie Cox. Right? <laughs> Now, Charlie Cox was an a infamous Dundonian newsagent, right? He had a newsagent in Monty Fith that was um, a small shack in a hedge. Like it was almost <laughs> completely consumed by a hedge. You had to kind of work your way through to get in. And he was a real sort of eccentric character. Uh, and so like, and one of the stories I remember someone telling me was, was that he went in there in his school uniform on his way to school and said to buy some chewing gum on his way in. And, the, and Charlie Cox said, I've got any change would you take a cabbage, right? And that was the sort of level of absurdism from this character. Anyway, that's Brian Cox's big brother, Charlie Cox. And so before there was any suggestion that Brian would be involved, people kept bringing up his brother. And um, when Brian came and did the first uh, incarnation of Bob Severn, which was Radio Scotland, Lunchtime Radio, he got into. I never mentioned this to Brian because I thought he might be offended. Yeah. Brian did an interview reporting Scotland news programme up there about coming back to Scotland to play this Dundonian character. And he said, um, you know, in fact, the the person this really reminds me of is my late brother Charlie. And he'd never, you know, and then he told me all these stories about Charlie, about how he he used to call the VAT man the posse. And he'd say, I'm on the run from the posse. And when he thought the VAT were coming to get him, he'd go and hide in his caravan in Tealing, which is three miles (laughs) I think (laughs) deep. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, so it's so Brian that enjoyed telling me these stories. So it's it's really interesting. And then Brian, and I got involved because it was all this serendipity with Bob Servant, you know. And and so first of all, the first book, Blinking, You Miss It, went out of print. This little London publisher printed it. wasn't sure what they were going to do with it. Nothing happened, and that had gone. And Bob Servant had gone, and I was off doing something else. And then. My mate said, oh, have you seen Esquire magazine? And I got the magazine and they had a feature called The Funniest Books Ever Written. And they'd asked authors to name their favourite book. And Irvin Welsh had named the Bob Server book. Now Arvin, who I hadn't met at that point, right. a, a, a mutual friend had given him this book. And he'd done this really nice piece about it in Esquire. So I took that to a Scottish publisher and said, look, would you consider reprinting it? Put this on your front cover this from Irvin. So they did do, they reprinted it. And it was that book that sort of took off a wee bit and got the BBC's interest so there was great luck with me there. And then the BBC Scotland wanted to do it for radio. And they said, well, who could we get to play it? And I said, well, the dream would obviously be Brian Cox, but I don't know Brian. And this is all very long-winded, but I was in New York at the time. It's a podcast now. We love me. long, it's long form. It's, it's long-form. We
0: love long-form stories. It's not a eight-minute radio <laughs> segment. <laughs> okay,
1: um, so anyway, I was in New York and Dundee United were playing Rangers in the Scottish Cup. So with the time difference, it was on like in the morning in New York and it was a Rangers pub. And I went to watch this game. Dundee United won, as a side note. The ball went in off Andy Robertson's arse, but we'll take it. And um, there was one other Dundee United fan in the, in the pub. And I started, so I gravitated towards him, started chatting to him. And then we had mutual friends. And then he'd heard bizarrely through his mum about the Bob Servant book. No way. And I, said, and I said, well, we're actually trying to do it for radio. I mean, what I'm trying to do is try and get the book to Brian Cox. He said, oh, I know Brian, you know. And yeah, it was nuts. So I kind of called this called this guy's bluff by um, uh, giving him the book, and didn't hear anything. Yeah. But a month later, I had this phone call from Owen Bell at BBC Scotland, very confused, saying, "I've just had a phone call from Brian Cox's <laughs> agent. Say, when do you want to do this radio show?" <laughs> and uh, and that was it. So just you know,
0: I mean, go- that's amazing because even those you know those handful of people that would come to the scottish book festivals word of mouth right someone had bought them the book word of mouth from irving in esquire and then word of mouth going all the way over to new york and that's how it happened isn't it fucking incredible how these things happen
1: huge fortune huge fortune and so and then brian came and did it and um First time I physically met Brian was at Radio Scotland when we were doing it at Pacific Key, and um, it was just a dream for me. You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't believe this was happening to be honest. And then it went out at lunchtime on Radio Scotland. My mum and dad came through from Dundee. and We all sat together listening to it, the radio.
0: And that- how did you feel like hearing it on the radio from? On the, you know, from it being on the page. I couldn't, couldn't
1: believe it. Honestly, it felt this. And if, I honestly, felt, it felt to me like if this is the pinnacle, this is decent. Yeah. You know, this is decent. i get my head around that and I'll go and do other things. But it was just, and seeing actors perform your work is, you know, it's just so sensational. That kind of truly really epiphanical moment of saying, God, you write something, and then they come and improve it and they do, you know, and you, you add performance, which is something you don't control and it can just become something greater than its parts and, and a brilliant cast, you know. Laura Soul and Sanjeev did a bit um it was just it was just amazing yeah
0: are you i was thinking about this this morning actually on on the way in from the seaside are you one of those writers that is good because you talked about the script being elevated then are you quite good at handing over your months possibly years of hard work and then just relinquishing control I can't think
1: of anything worse <laughs> That is not the answer I expected, Neil. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think I'm experienced enough now that I am a hands-on uh, writer, you know, I'm an exec on shows and I'm very much present, but I do think I've, um, I'm collegiate and, you know, re- recognise the areas that I can help in and the areas that, I, I, you know, it's, it's not worth my time getting in there and I'll just get in the way. And equally, I'm really excited to see um, Be Surprised, you know, in terms of performance or direction or execution and things like that. So I, I I'm very much there, but I don't think I'm I'm kind of hands on in a constrictive way or a dominating way at all. And I've kind of reached a level where I feel very comfortable that I know see what's nice is knowing that you can get involved in areas if you feel that you can bring something to it and be helpful
0: or if you're needed
1: if you're needed yeah. Because when you start you're actually not allowed you know you're just not given that access when you start as a writer in television, which is a great bugbear of mine you know that when a director directs their first TV show, they're kind of doing the same job as when they do their 10th show. But when a writer has their first show in the air, they're not sort of trusted, they're sort of kept away from certain areas of the creative process, which I think is
0: wrong. Well, I did, because at the end of the day, it is and should be a collaborative process yeah. from everybody totally. on the team. Because, you know, like, let's for the let's take, for instance, when uh, a play is on at the Royal Court um and it's like a debut play or whatever well, it isn't the writer is always there the writer's there in the rehearsal room yeah
1: yeah
0: and we're all working on it yeah totally things are changing and we've got to sort of make it the best it could possibly be so of course the source the source is there it has to be there yeah. the writers there, helping
1: yeah no i'm, I'm you know i'm, I'm just ac- across it from the Writings, a rehearsal to the shooting, to the particularly the edit. I think you know I do a lot in there. But but again, in a in a collegiate, trusting, respectful way. But I I do think it's to the benefit of the project, and I and I I do think writers, particularly early in the career, are a little bit not for malicious reasons because but they're just not given that. Overview which they should be given because it makes them better writers and it helps them develop as a career and make better shows and everything else. So, and it's quicker, you know. Otherwise, you're going to have to have a lot of secondary conversations. So, if something's coming out of the rehearsal, the writer wasn't there, we better go and speak to him and you know.
0: Or well, even on set, it's like, well, wait there, we give need to, a call, we need yeah, to make yeah. a phone call. Yeah. It's like, well, if we were all here together, we yeah. could solve this problem. Yeah. And then also, there wouldn't be, you know, cho- you know choose your battles no, about totally. what you need to do totally, and what you yeah. want to change.
1: I also spend a lot of time on the scripts. I spend a lot of time in dialogue. So I I think that it's um, obviously in rehearsal is when it's more fluid and it's interesting to hear it spoken and you can agree in the room that things aren't quite right. But certainly once we're filming, I do feel that, you know, a writer spent a long, long time writing that script and a kind of instant reaction on a set. If if the first take doesn't work for whatever reason, look at other reasons to make. don't, Don't go to the easy answer of cutting a line or chopping a line, you know. I think, at the end, that's my very biased view on these things.
0: No, but I agree with you, and I think a lot of people would, because I've been in those situations before, and not necessarily that I've had a problem, but I've, I've certainly had problems in the past, but I've been very lucky with people I've collaborated with that, you know, it's right, if if the first take doesn't work, then there needs to be a way around it, because somebody, as you say, has worked very hard on this. Yeah, I think it's slightly easier, even though I think comedy is much harder, drama. It's slightly easier when you can see that a joke isn't working yeah, when course. we're in this certain situation or with this certain cast and it just needs it sometimes it's just the tiniest little tweak yeah. and ah, there we go. That's why it works.
1: Oh, I mean the best thing in the world as a writer is seeing an actor take a line that you were you know was a bit pedestrian on the page and just find some aspect to it. And that happens all the time with great actors and yeah. it's so exciting. I think, God, that scene's so much better than it is on the page because they've just made such clever choices and it's it's really thrilling to watch that.
0: So seeing, well, hearing Bob Servant come yeah. to life on the radio, did you ever think that it would be transported to the screen?
1: Well, it was, I think it, having Brian on board made it Certainly possible. Helped, yeah. Oh, hugely. It wouldn't have happened, I don't think, if it wasn't Brian. And, and um, also I was very fortunate that I, that, point of time was when there was still a bit more money in television, you know, BBC four were making shows, you know, Bob Servant was on BBC four, you know, and, and and I don't, they were making back then probably four sitcoms a year, you know, which is, which is largely gone uh, sadly. And so BBC Scotland took it as well. So I think the Scottishness of it, the fact it was regional TV, the fact BBC four still made things and Brian Cox, to be honest, all those things came together to sneak it on the screen a little bit. And it was such a happy experience making it. I mean, we shot um, in Glasgow, but also Dundee. When well, we shot in Dundee, I stayed with my mum and dad. I got up in the morning, walked around the corner to Bob Servants. Office. It was crazy. It's the dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People are walking past filming that I, that I knew. And, and, you know, I'd go for a pint in Brighty Ferry at night on the way home. It was just, it was an unbelievable experience and really, really exciting. Some such fantastic actors in it. So it was. Yeah, it was it was a very kind of exciting, exciting time in my life, really.
0: And let's just come up to the present with yeah. Bob Servant now, because it's going back on radio. It's, in, you, in, it, is it around Christmas? Yes, yeah, so, right. well,
1: Bob Servant is very briefly returning <laughs> and disappearing forever. Forever? <laughs> yeah. Oh, let's retire. So a few things happened. Brian, I had lunch with Brian maybe three or four months ago. He got in touch when the goal came out very sweetly enjoyed it. And we had lunch and he was very kind about it. And he, he'd said, oh, and he'd said a couple of times, the last times i see seen him, he'd, he sort of threw, we all more bobbed, you know? And I thought, well, I think Brian, I think you like the sound of that. Yeah. But I think the reality of doing that, in, you know, in Scotland and, and having to along the lines and trying to find time in your schedule and all this stuff and, and, and not necessarily something I want to do in terms of television, but um, it started on radio and I started, I said, well, what about we do if we finish it on radio on Radio 4. And then for the actors, as you know, they love it. And quite yeah. rightly, no, don't learn the lines, no makeup. There's no hanging around. You're just battering it out, scene to scene. I can just direct it. It's just really simple for me. Um, so I also thought Bob Servant is the kind of man who would feel that it was important for him to retire from public life.
0: <laughs> and let him. Yeah, let him
1: <laughs> Despite nobody going about their business wondering if he was involved <laughs> in public life. And it start, It reminded me of when um, Andy Cole retired from international football and he hadn't been picked for the international team for about five years. And, you know, it was that sort of thing. It just felt funny that Bob would think this was important. That yeah. We marked his... So um, so we did this two-part Radio 4 thing with Brian, Johnny Watson, Greg McHugh. Oh, lovely Johnny Greg, Watson. Greg McHugh. Uh, lovely Greg. And, uh, Rufus Jones, uh-huh. Rufus and uh, Phyllis Logan, and
0: Lulu. <laughs> What? yeah <laughs> yeah how how uh, so did you, obviously I, you you must have wrote lulu in your well script.
1: lulu was in the books she was always a kind of great um exotic figure of fancy for for bob you see yeah and when i said to brian "Oh, there needs to be a sort of love interest and i said well in the books it was always lulu and brian said, why well, i know lulu <laughs> i thought why can you fucking mention that before so they, um, they're near neighbors in north in in, in north london so they um so Lulu, came, I was just brilliant. And she was so much fun. I got this message from Lulu that said, Oi, where's my script, Lulu? <laughs> and it really made me laugh. So they, she was a great actress, you know, really good. So, so we did that. And then if I can just plug something, because what I also did was I'm a patron of a charity in Dundee called Dundee Bairns that does food and activities for kids in school holidays. Yeah. And... I got all the rights back to the Bob Servant book. So what I've also done is a best of Bob Servant book, which is called With My Head Held High, which is available through the Broughty Ferry Bookhouse Independent Bookshop, and all proceeds of that book go to the, the Dundee Bears. So what I've done is these two things together, and then Bob is shuffles off.
0: Brilliant! I'm, i genuinely. I'm not just saying this because we're friends. I'm really looking forward to <laughs> listening to that. <laughs> yeah. I can't wait. It was.
1: It was very. It was. It was such fun couple of days. It was great. <laughs> King Lulu. Johnny Watson as well is back in it. As I fun. love Johnny Watson. Yeah.
0: What a lovely kind of man. We worked together on Doctor Who. Oh,
1: of course. Lord, of course. He's yeah. a good friend. Yeah. yeah, he's good.
0: Now, we're going to leave yeah. Bob there, but I want to carry on with Brian yeah. a little bit. And can we talk about Brando? <laughs> yeah. Can we talk about Jackson? Can we talk about Taylor? To a degree is my no, answer I mean, to that. The thing is, what I will say, which yeah. I don't know if you know, you have full editorial control. We can Well cut, that helps. We, we can cut <laughs> edit around anything yeah, yeah, of here. Of course we can. But this people listening may go, what are you talking about, yeah. Parkinson? Um so could we could we talk yeah, about absolutely. urban myths? Yeah, of course. So there's a show for Sky Play. Was it Sky Playhouse? Sky Arts. Sky Arts. Yeah. And it was called Urban Myths. Yeah. And I'll, I'll leave the rest to you oh, Cheers <laughs> <laughs> I mean obviously I'm going to pop in occasionally but
1: yeah. <laughs> Wipe it, you're cool uh, Well the Urban was a sort of great great series in Sky Arts I did a few of them I did um, one about um, Samuel Beckett Did you uh, one with Major? I did one with Martin when, yep. uh, It was backstage at Live Aid Which was great fun uh, Martin played Major, He was brilliant in the role Rufus um, Cardinal Barnes lots of brilliant actors in that one. And then I did, um, what else did I do? I did uh, Margaret, uh, Mick and Margaret, which was about the Mick Jagger and uh, Princess Margaret friendship with uh, (laughs) Kelly MacDonald playing Prince Margaret brilliantly. And then I did a slightly more (laughs) ill fated one called, uh, (laughs) I can't remember what it was actually called though, but it was, um, now, the story is that on 9-11, Michael Jackson, Elizabeth Taylor and Marlon Brando were together in New York And when the towers got hit, they panicked and got in a hire car and drove, I think, to Ohio or something like this. And this is a sort of apocryphal story. And we shot it and uh, it did not end up going out because there was a bit of controversy about some of our casting, the Michael Jackson role, which was the... Of course, the inevitable casting of Joseph Fiennes was brilliant.
0: I but mean, the, the inevitable casting <laughs> of Joseph Fiennes. Uh,
1: that's a joke, clearly. <laughs> when My listeners
0: anyway, are very intelligent, Neil. Yeah, they're,
1: they're very intelligent. Anyway, it didn't go out. Now, but what the public missed was Brian Cox as Martin Brando and Stockard Channing as Elizabeth Taylor. Taylor. And those two together were um, so funny and so believable, I bet. And uh, and Carrie Fisher was in it. I heard Carrie it was one
0: of her last roles. Yeah, right? so Carrie
1: Fisher. This I'm trying to remember it all. It was such a mad experience, the whole thing. That she was Elizabeth Taylor's, I believe, stepmother. Eddie Fisher, I think that's right, through, through for a period. I think she was in London. I think she knew one of the producers. And for whatever reason, she wanted to get involved. So she came and played a burger bar attendant.
0: Oh, back to the burgers. Back to the burgers.
1: <laughs> and it was just insane. So people said, you know, Carrie Fisher's coming to this role. And no one quite believed it. And then we were shooting, I think, in like some burger place in Essex. And she just showed up. And she had a dog with her and her assistant, And she was lovely. And then she, And then I remember we were so up against it with time. I think the director had to uh, go peel off with a tiny second unit to grab something, and I read in for it. So, that, so I've acted <laughs> like this across the her, just off camera, reading in as you do with Carrie Fisher, wow. who's just fixing me with her was amazing sort of eyes of hers, and I was shaking that leaf doing this. I think so. She was in it
0: as well. <laughs> I mean. Yes. It's the maddest, maddest thing. It's the maddest thing.
1: But, you know, what? I what is quite funny about that is people now see it as this great lost classic or why was it never shown? And so I'm quite happy to let that artistic view of it build <laughs> and not show people the uh, perhaps slightly more ramshackle reality is that it's something that was shot in four days. But it was crazy, you know, it was a, it was a crazy thing to, to go through at the time, but it's, you know, it, it, it's the kind of world you live in. And I really enjoyed making it. And, uh, you know, brilliant performances, great fun, and, you know, you move
0: on. And also, if there's no control there, is there? If it decides to get pulled, it decides to get pulled. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's it was... I mean, we talked about going... You know, choosing your battles then, was there any part of you that wanted to sort of go to war about that?
1: Probably but scene? honestly it feels like a long time ago that, it feels several projects ago it's not something i lose any sleep over it I up.
0: don't want to talk about it Craig,
1: that's fine I, don't want to <laughs> I have... talked I about mean, it Craig,
0: I mean I had to bring it up Neil,
1: <laughs> if you mention it again I'll fucking walk
0: <laughs> <laughs> Now we spoke before about uh, confidence and yeah. you mentioned the brilliant guilt Yes, um, I'm not saying yes to the brilliant, but I, I, mean, I am. Yeah. I am, and not just because I know a lot of people there, because it's fucking great. So, um, was it always your intention to go to BBC Scotland with it first? Because um, no. obviously you're, da- you're down here. Yeah, down you know? here. Yeah, but
1: I, I, I pitched. I actually pitched guilt in America with Sasha Baron Cohn's company. And just as a pitch trying to get a script deal, I used to go over and do that quite a lot of that. And I'm very, very, very glad I didn't sell it because my experience in America is maybe half a dozen pilot scripts have sold and got ordered and none of them have got made. Mm. And it's very hard to get them back in, legally and turn around and things like that.
0: Just explain to me about that as, yeah. and speak to me like a, a child. I don't really understand That's how... That's what i do. How... <laughs> I'll set them up, you knock them down. Um, So you, you write a pilot and it goes, out. they buy it in America. And if it doesn't, no. So so, so
1: I I go over and pitch the idea. Yeah. You you go over and you go around the studios and you've got maybe 15 minutes to pitch your idea. And what you hope is that they buy it in terms of ordering a pilot script. Right. So that's, that's sort of selling the idea if you like. So I've done that a number of occasions and it's very exciting, very thrilling going around the studios and and, in the States and stuff. And, um, but none of them have ever got made, and then you, if, you, you invariably you can, just can't get the idea back. I think there's like a three-year or five-year thing, but it's very hard.
0: Right. So, so once they buy the idea, they've got. Yeah, and that.
1: then they don't make it, and then you, it's gone. You know. So I've got you know things out there that are still locked in the system in America, one way or another. Um, God, that so, must be really frustrating. Yeah. So especially
0: because you you wouldn't pitch an idea if you didn't believe in it. Obviously.
1: No, totally. So I'm really glad that I didn't sell guilt because that would have just been that would have, it would have gone after that I'd have spent six months writing a script they wouldn't have made it and then I wouldn't have had it again so I then came back there was then another British broadcaster who I won't name who commissioned uh I think a script and then decided that they had something too similar in development that show that they thought was too similar I'll tell you end. <laughs> right that's,
0: that's <laughs> it, a, it was not a success <laughs> and it was not similar but anyway so so but isn't I got it back? Isn't that sorry to interrupt? Isn't some? Do you feel sometimes that's a stock line?
1: Probably, yeah, probably. And it, you just never know. Why no, and like also now. you
0: don't need to waste too much time thinking about that. Otherwise, you'd never sort no of carry just, on being part creative. Also, the, process,
1: it's the biggest thing but what they did do very kindly is just give me it back. Just yeah, quick time So then I had this script, and I kept working on it, and I made it more and more Scottish, more and more specific. And then I saw Ewan Angus, who was in charge of BBC Scotland at the time. Now, Ewan had originally commissioned Bob Servant, and he said, so BBC Scotland were launching this new channel and they needed a drama to launch it. And I told him I had this script, sent him out on the Friday, texted me at the weekend saying, I'd like to make this. And it was obviously it wasn't as simple as that. There was all sorts of things that had to happen financially and writing of other scripts and things like that. But... um, Was this based off...
0: Uh, episode one yes
1: yeah of episode one
0: and but did you have to give him an outline for the yeah, whole series I think, yeah
1: i think it was episode one and then a sort of series outline it was going to be six episodes so one of the great things that happened with guilt was it was going to be six episodes and then very late on they realized they only had the money to make four so what i did was i took six episodes worth of story and crammed it into four so people talk about the pace of guilt and things that's because i crammed all the story in wow so it's brilliant yeah. so then nine and now that's how i write i try to write at that level of pace so was all these happy accidents. But I was very fortunate because, Gil I don't think with my CV at the time, I, I would have got a drama away through London, basically. I just don't think I would have done. Um, but...
0: Do you think they take less less of a chance or...
1: I just probably... Yeah, probably. They probably want to see people that have worked within that genre a bit more. It was my first drama, really, Eric and me to a degree. But um Ewan just sort of backed me and then he... He, um, his successor, who came in, is uh, Steve Carson and people there. They, they kept, they just kept believing in it, and they, want, they wanted this to launch the channel with this. And it's not an easy drama on paper. It's not like a, you are not like a detective show or something yeah. that you think is going to really hit those numbers. It's a pretty unique little kind of quite cultish thing. Mm. So, again, just very so important people believing in you and backing you. So, I think the Scottishness of it got it on the new channel, BBC Two. Then ran it, and it was a bit of a word of mouth thing really
0: yeah it really was i mean it really talk about catching fire it really did yeah. sort of up there and then straight down here as well
1: well what helped was it wasn't dropped all at once it was kind of old school weekly release so it actually had a bit of time to to kind of build up so like i got a five star review in the guardian but i think quite late on in the run you know people were finding it yeah talking about it so um yeah that's it was kind of it kind of creatively changed my life I think
0: How do you feel about that you spoke about the old school weekly episodes people tuning in and you know the slow burn as opposed to the complete series being dropped now. Um what would you prefer?
1: I'd prefer the old school definitely. I think most people would. You like the idea that you're connecting with people's lives over that length of time. Um but it's just you, you know it's not how it it's not the the kind of world we live in really it's very unusual certain yeah. shows I mean Jed seems to be able to get it for doesn't he for, for Line of Duty
0: yeah I mean that's, he's one of the only people that I, I know that does it well I, I, that and apart from certain streamers Happy you know, Valley I think did the same Happy, yeah Happy Valley did the same I know Slow Horses on Apple
1: that's what, does, yeah.
0: does the same as opposed to a lot of other people that just drop
1: which is fair enough i mean it's it's i suppose it's they probably look at it as slightly horses for courses and i think that you know i think the gold for example maybe is hopefully quite bingy it's quite fast moving which tend to have a big finish to each episode so i i it, i'm not adverse to it at all it's still it's still amazing when you get someone three days in saying they've just completed it and you know all that stuff so it was um it, but i think also there's such different so guilt as we've discussed, sort of sneaked out a little bit. There was no huge expectations on it at all, certainly in terms of viewing figures. And then it won a few awards and critically did well. Yeah. But the gold, it's such a different beast. Is that you know BBC One, Sunday night at nine o'clock, we inherited the Happy Valley slot. And yeah, I, mean, like, you know, I remember. You, you've got to hit you like you've
0: got to hit those numbers. You've and you, am I right in saying you have no say of its TX? No, when not right.
1: No, and and, I think that's fair enough. It's up to yeah. their job. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but
0: uh, I mean <laughs> you're yeah. follow you're following which was probably the the highest rated anticipated show. Yeah.
1: I think I think Yes, I, I I you'd still choose that, I think. You still want a good platform. And I think and it was a new drama, so I don't think people ever thought in terms of numbers we were going to match the our predecessor, if you like. But um it was nuts. I mean, it was nuts. You know, the first episode ultimately, I think, got near 10 million viewers. Yeah. And it's... it's. I've never done anything like that before. Maybe never again. But, you know, that thing of people talking about it. You know, I had a few experiences of hearing people talk about it just out and about. And that's just mind-bending, you know. it's um, So... It was but but there was pressure. That's my you know, so with guilt there's no pressure on viewing figures at all. But with the gold, like we had to hit those numbers. We just had to, you know, to do to do more of it and to feel that you're deemed a success.
0: But I think it was I think the gold was a success. We've we've jumped around a bit. Yeah. But for those people that that need to catch up with the goal or we just need to remind people, let's just talk so the gold was about the Brinks Matt yes. Brinks Matt robbery, yeah. wasn't it? Which you know there's certain elements of that story that's been told before on film. Bits and pieces, yeah. Bits and yeah. pieces of it are much wider ago, but this was kind of a slightly different take on it, wasn't it? It was
1: kind of about what happened next, yeah. really. So um, it was, um, I think people had looked at it in terms of the heist and maybe the backgrounds of the heist, but I used the heist as the starting point and I got rid of it in the cold open of the first episode yeah. because it was all about what happened next. And um, it's very lucky it was like it's a great story you know you get pitched a lot of things i'm sure you do as well as a sort of actor and everything else where it's like a true story oh this could be a this could be something and when you look at it and boil it down there's just not that much story you know it's, it's maybe a film but there's maybe three acts really there's only three significant dramatic developments in that story um but the goal is a very unusual and rare thing that it was it was so complicated and so far reaching. I went from so many interesting worlds and areas and brought in all these characters that it became about trying to distill it down. And right. even in the canvas of six BBC one hours, which is a lot of time, if you write with pace, that's a lot of story that you yeah. go through. But even then it was like, right, who are the, how am I going to composite some of these characters? Or what? St- that's a great story about don't think it fits in for whatever reason. And it was, it was just brilliant to come across it and, and to, to tell that story it touched on lots of themes that i found interesting um so many brilliant characters that had their very unique motivations and positions within it and i got acts i tracked down the detective brian boyce that Hugh bonneville plays is still alive he's in his late 80s now and it wasn't easy to find him but when i did uh, you know and it wasn't easy to kind of win his trust if you like but then over time he just just hearing that That first-person account of the whole thing was was fascinating. So, yeah, very, very good story to come across for episodic television, I think.
0: And it looked incredible. It looked high. It looked high-budget. Yeah,
1: yeah, it was brilliantly. I mean, a Neil Correa... So lead director who won an Oscar during the production. Luckily, luckily after he signed his contract. Oh, so yeah, right.
0: <laughs> got him.
1: <laughs> yeah, he won uh, for the the, his, the short that he did with Rizamid. He won won the Oscar.
0: Oh right, of course.
1: And uh, so he went to the Oscars, won an Oscar, and came back to shoot in Dorking the next day. And so it was uh, it was so he he looked amazing. And Lawrence Goff is also the director on it, who did brilliantly. So yeah, Luke and the design and everyone that worked on it in the kind of arts department were. But the music was great, The costume, it just, yeah, it looks so rich.
0: I mean, just a classy piece of work, really. It looked yeah. like people going, yeah, this is a fucking classy drama. And even, I think, the inherited audience of Happy Valley would have gone, oh, yeah, I'm into this, because it's, it's very, very different from what we've just been with for the last six months. Hopefully. I mean,
1: it was great for me writing something that has the budget that you can write something a little bit more cinematic and... It won't, you know, you won't hit a wall in pre-production when people yeah. say the "fucks this." Neil?
0: I can't go on. right this, <laughs> <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah.
1: So um, it was, it was great, and we're doing a second series of
0: it. So. Oh, you are! Yeah, Congratulations, yeah. brilliant. With the the there was a book that came out as well. Was that
1: English? that was with the researcher. So Thomas Turner, who, was, who did a lot of research in the first series, did brilliant, brilliantly um, insightful work. We ended up with this massive document of of just research a lot of it we just didn't have room for in the show so we talked about it and we just turned that into a book so it was um yeah sort of accompanying book if you like which tells the full full story and lots and lots of detail for people that want to kind of hear more about it
0: now spoke about the fact then that when you've got a, a larger budget you're quite excited about what you're creating the world you're creating what's is there an average day for you writing wise do you because I spoke to a lot of writers, sometimes they might get up at five yeah. and they'll work till like nine and then they'll have breaks. Are you a nine till five? Are you getting up at five in the morning or how does that depend? I,
1: I, I do often do, so I've got sort of domestic duties, if you like, from seven. So I, I often, if I wake up at half, five, six, will definitely do an hour's writing and that, I love that. It kind of settles me down a little bit. Yeah, but beyond that, it's mornings are definitely more productive. Um, and if if I'm not under huge pressure by and large, I'll work writing-wise till about two-ish, maybe, and then I'm pretty, pretty out of it. I mean, I think I think there's it's it's a diminishing returns. Sometimes with deadlines you have to push yourself. But if you don't have to, if you absolutely knock your pan in all day writing, you're just not gonna have anything the next day, you know. And and I think that, you know, my big thing is that longevity, uh, you know, both in terms of career and in terms of writing, just keep it going. So, you know, don't if I don't have to uh, kind of kill myself one day, do a good day's work. And then the last thing I always do is I do a list of notes to myself about what I'm doing the next day. So I always know, I think a big thing is know what you're writing the next day. So you don't spend that first hour procrastinating. It's not a blank page. You're like, oh, you're half asleep. Here's a list of three jobs to do. I always try and send myself first thing to the hardest scene I've got to write. So I try and do that first. Um, but I just, you know, I work hard. You know, I've worked the last three weekends because I'm in pre-production and I'm doing 100 things. So it's, it's it, you know, I definitely put the hours in. I've definitely got a good work ethic, which I do think is really important. You know, you need to match that to the the creative stuff. and um, But mornings are definitely more more kind of uh, pr- productive for me.
0: I was going to ask if you had any uh, tips for writers, but I think you've just answered the question before I actually answered yeah. it. There. I think that's a really, really clever thing to make notes on what you're doing the following day yeah uh so again so you said to you not procrastinating yeah. or you know you're not and start on the with
1: the biggest problem i think that's the other thing because otherwise that's just going to sit at the back of the mind you know you go off and do the easy stuff and but also i think as well that um if i'm busy and i have to keep going in the afternoons i edit so like i'll write in the mornings and the afternoons i'll go back and that's when i'll go back and look at of the raw stuff i'll kind of get out in the morning so you feel you've done those pages and then keep finessing it. But I, um, I just, I enjoy writing. Luckily, you know, I read these interviews with some writers sometimes and it sounds absolutely torturous. Yeah. Sometimes it sounds hellish. And I don't know. I mean, everyone's different. I, certainly the the times in my career where I felt like that. It's because I've been writing something I didn't really want to write or working perhaps with people I wasn't particularly enjoying working with. I wasn't enjoying the project as a whole and I sort of lost my confidence in it, you know, and I've had developments like all writers where, by the time the script goes into the network, you're kind of thinking, "I hope this doesn't get picked up to series," because I t- actually don't want to write. You know, I've done sh- I've done scripts where I'm sitting there writing and thinking, "I wouldn't watch this." <laughs> you <know?
0: laughs> and that's, it's a horrible position to be in. Well, the same when yeah, yeah, a script's not going. <laughs> yeah, I-, I wouldn't watch this, and I don't even know if I'd want to be. A Have
1: part you taken of jobs this? early in your career where you're in the on the set thinking, "I wouldn't watch this"? So.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's get that IMDb up because it'd be okay, good for no the no problem. List. We'll do that. I'll, I'll, I'll finish the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, very rarely. Yeah. Very rarely, I think, in my younger days. Um, but then again, you know, I say that. It's like, I love doing the building. Yeah. And I love doing oh, yeah, casualty yeah. or whatever it was, whether it was whole bill casualty, I can't remember. Yeah. Because their building blocks, they give actors, um, uh, it's like uh, rep theatre. You know, it's like repertory Theatre doesn't really exist that much anymore. People don't go off to Stratford-on-Avon for 18 months and continue, you know, rehearsing and performing in the evening. Whereas shows like The Bill, it's like you're on, bam, bam, bam. And they know what they're doing. Everybody knows what they're doing. It's a great machine. There's actors there who have been there for 10 years. They know what you're doing. You're coming in to bust your leg playing football or whatever. And you just get out there because it's your first job in front of a telly. You don't know what that person does. Um, behind uh, the camera there. You're just constantly learning and drinking it all, and I think it's brilliant. So no, in that respect, I don't regret any of no, those things. No. no, absolutely. That's good.
1: No, I, I kind of... I remember one time I we went to America and uh, pitched something with Sharon Horgan's company, and she was making Catastrophe at the time, and I ended up hoping hoping to sell something as a single camera and I ended up selling it as a kind of multi-camera sitcom thing, a kind of broader network. And writing that because it was a good job you know it was a chance to make something and everything else but as i'm writing it thinking i'm not doing a great job here it doesn't feel my natural voice and i remember shan who was so incredibly helpful and sort of kind through the whole process talking about her writing process with catastrophe and character led and her what her and rob Delane were doing and i think god i want to do that's the that's how i want to approach writing you know and that was a kind of moment for me as well where i kind of thought that stuff i'm able to sell maybe like sitcom stuff in america there's great sitcom writers but I don't think I am one and more thinking about this is stuff I can maybe do and maybe write but it didn't feel kind of real to me yeah and I I think probably after that project and a couple more I had this period where I thought I'm just going to not write for a month and I'm going to just think about what I really want to do and from that month I read Eddie Bremen's book I came up with one of the urban myth ideas and I think I wrote the pitch document for guilt you know from that just taking just stepping back and then well what's the kind of story i I really want to write what am i interested in and making it more story driven i think than premise driven if you like which is what a lot of comedy can be so
0: this is so interesting because the next thing i was going to ask you is how good are you with stepping back and just stopping because you know because you love you love doing what you do you love writing but sometimes and i love acting but sometimes it's very important to step back just to see the bigger picture. So because of you stepping back then, yeah, these certain ideas were just flowing in.
1: I think it's difficult because I think it's very hard to shake off that thing of when you're a younger thing, I, I need to work. I yeah. need to, you know, pragmatically, yeah. I need money. And... I want to try and succeed at this. And the more work I do, the better I'll get. Oh, that's an opportunity. I couldn't, can't, shouldn't turn that down because then I might meet them and then I might get to do that and that hand to mouth sort of thing. And not just financially, but also just feeding that creative development. Creatively, yeah, 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 yeah. And so it's hard to shake that off, even when you get to a point where, thankfully, you're in the privileged position of being able to step back if you, if you wanted to. But, um, so I keep meaning to, I keep meaning to say, right, I'm going to plan this so that when I finish that filming, I'm going to do. But, you know, now... I'm in pre-production and I'm already writing a new thing, you know, yeah. in my kind of downtime because, I, because I, I'm i excited about this new thing and there's an opportunity. So it's, um, I need to get better at that, to be honest, because it's not sort of sustainable. I mean, last year I, um, so 2022, I made the gold, and made Guilt 3 and this film I wrote got shot as well. And it was it was ridiculous to be honest. But you're, it's such a privileged position to be in. All those years you've struggled, you're certainly not going to moan about it. But it is it's full on. You know, it's yeah. mentally like draining. Working every weekend. You know, you end up doing twenty, thirty days on the bounce and traveling a lot and and trying to write well in production. You know, those different parts of your brain. So anyway, I, I, it's a ridiculous thing to moan about because i it's very, very fortunate. I'm very pleased to be in this position, but. Um, you, I think you do worry sometimes that the work can suffer you because I'm just taking on too much.
0: Now, there's been mainly, you know, we started out with football features and then we went into radio and there's been mainly television. But you've recently just had a film out directed oh, yeah. by James Marsh yeah. with Gabriel Byrne. Talk to me a bit about that and where the idea came from. And also, I want to talk about how you feel about the difference between television and film. Yeah.
1: Well it was a samuel beckett biopic that i wrote uh i developed it at sky as a short film and then I, I did a completely different sort of biopic take on it um it's sky were very supportive through sky cinema and we ended up in sky arts and we ended up getting um film distribution on boards and it was it was shot on a cinematic release so nuts you know seeing something that was in cinema listings and and everything else, not many cinemas, but <laughs> <laughs> not not, <enough. laughs> not for very long. But uh, it was, it was, it's inarguably, it was in the cinemas. It was in some cinemas for some time. But it was really happy with it. It was, you know, it was, it was an art house film. Um, but it was, I thought, it, I thought they did a great job on it. Sort of black and white uh, film um, shot by James Marsh, it's great director, Gabriel Byrne, Aidan Gillen, Maxine Peake, yeah. Um, incredible cast, you know, she Sandrine Bonner, great French actress and things. So it was, it was, yeah, it was nuts, but you know, it's, it's, it's a very different job being yeah. actor and television and film. As I said earlier with TV, I'm fairly hands on as, as, a kind of writer, producer with film. You, you, it's just a director, led Medium. That's the way it's set up. James is a very collegiate, respectful guy. So I think I had almost as good as an experience as a writer can have in film. But I definitely would see television as the day job. I definitely enjoy that creative role much more. Yeah, I mean, me for, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, really, because
0: you know, lots of people go uh, have asked in the past. Oh well, you know, you've done a few films in the past. Was you not? Would you not? I said, well, no, that's not. I feel so much. You talked about walking on set before. Yeah. I feel so much more comfortable walking on a television. Really? To create. To, I think I prefer the arc. Right. I prefer the arc of, of a six or an eight yeah. with the possibility of carrying on to tell more stories, to go deeper and deeper. Whereas, you know, you've got that however long, depending on what your budget is.
1: Do you feel and- it's a bit more locked in in terms of your role as well? Because I've got pals that have been in films and their parts have just been cut massively in the in the edit. And Whereas TV maybe, because people don't overwrite so much in terms of the scripts, maybe... So you're a bit safer from that, do you think?
0: I, d- I don't think like that, but I know certain pals, certainly, that have been in big epics. Possibly and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think definitely the same one. Yeah. You know, and it does happen like that. Yeah. You go, well... Pfft.
1: But, you know, I'll tell you, so this is the difference between film and TV for me as a writer. I went to Budapest where we filmed the Beckett thing and um, the set was this huge um, Hungarian apartment that was playing Paris and within the set they... In these dummy walls, set walls, and split it up into rooms. So I got there, and they were rehearsing a, a scene over in the corner, Gabriel and Maxine Peake, and I thought, God, I'd love to... So, you know, TV, obviously I'd just be involved in the rehearsal, but yeah. I thought, you know, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm a visitor here, so I wasn't, they were off rehearsing. I thought, well, I'd love to just hear, particularly, I'd love to hear what they're, how they work, you know. So I looked up the side of this dummy wall, and there was a doorway, and I thought, well, if I go up through this dark passage to that doorway, I'll be able to just watch it. So I thought, I'm sure that'll be fine. It won't get in anyone's way. So I went up there. And I was at the doorway and it was great. You know, Gabriel was hearing how to, would... And then this Hungarian runner walked over and I thought, she might be, do you want a cup of tea or something? And she came over and she nodded and she shut the door, right? <laughs> my face. But that was the only source of light. So I was then in pitch black and had to feel my way back along the wall to get out. So like, if you want a metaphor for being a ricer on a film set, that's about as, uh, that's about as good as it gets. So that you know, that kind of certainly sent a message. But the but the, the the experience as a whole, there's something undeniably romantic about a film and being in the cinema. And like oh, premier, absolutely! You know, yeah, we premiered at the San Sebastian Film Festival. We went over there, and it was. It was great. So I I feel that I had a great experience, worked with brilliant people, but I I do think in terms of what I want to do, television is just feels like the day job and feels like, what I I really like that role. I'm comfortable in that role. Yeah. I like being across the process. I think hopefully I bring some value to it.
0: Now, Neil, we're going to end where we normally start with uh, a few little questions. Uh. I probably think I know this. A good film or a good book?
1: A good film or a good book? What do you think you know? What do you think my answer is to that?
0: I think I'd probably say a good book.
1: A good book? Uh, Yeah, yes, probably. Particularly when I'm writing. When I'm writing, I just like reading at night or watching documentaries. I can't watch any sort of dramatic thing on television or it infects my mind and sort of lose confidence of what I'm working on.
0: Is that across the board, even even when you're not writing or do you invest in a a drama? I kind of struggle, you know, I, I, I kind of watch like, there's a lot of
1: classic things like Sopranos, Mad Men or like West Wing that I've probably watched several times over like the over a decade yeah. all the way through. But um in general, if I'm if I'm writing at night, I just try and watch something that's completely different.
0: Speaking of night, Saturday night or Sunday morning?
1: These days Sunday morning I'd say more.
0: Yeah, true. City <laughs> shopping or a country stroll? Country stroll, I think. Now Would you walk out at the interval or would you sit through it, interpret that how you will?
1: Um, Difficult. Because often you're going to watch something that pals in and you have to be very careful.
0: (laughs) So you would leave very carefully.
1: I'd crawl out in the (laughs)
0: interval. And this probably, I asked this to, um, I suppose age comes into this. Less ambition or more... Um, interesting.
1: Probably it's less all consuming as it was when I was younger, but the flip side is I've got to an area of working that I'm really comfortable with. So it's not really ambition to kind of go and do this, go and do that. I mm. just want to sustain, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think a lot about that. God, if I could just eke this out for 10, 15 years, I can maybe make another four shows and that's a decent, you know, all that stuff. So sustaining.
0: Sustainability. <laughs> yeah. uh, are you a better host or a better guest?
1: Interesting. I think probably, probably guest. I can just fully concentrate on on guesting.
0: You, Neil Forsyth, positive or negative?
1: I uh, largely positive.
0: Largely positive. <laughs> uh, true or false? Offense is taken, never given.
1: I think that's very true and uh, yes that's all I'll say on that matter
0: um, another quote there is nothing funnier than the fool who thinks he's clever
1: yeah definitely what is it I think Beckett said and I can't even remember the quote but it's something about or Joyce maybe the gap between the, the, what a man sees as his role in the world and the reality is where humour lies I mean that's a total bastardisation of the quote but there's something in that just take that away give it a wee pause <laughs>
0: Neil Forsyth, you've been a brilliant one of my brilliant final guests. I'm so pleased we did this. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me, and thank you for the podcast, Craig, which I love.
0: Bless you. And another episode is done. I really love that. I really hope you got a measure of Mr. Neil Forsyth and who he is. And if you want to. ...delve even deeper and I really think you should... ...go and watch The Gold... ...go and watch Guilt... ...listen and watch to Bob Servant... ...and read Bob Servant where you can... Um, ...most is all on BBC iPlayer... ...if you're in the UK... ...yeah, hard recommend... ...well I better get myself... Ship shape and sorted... ...because tomorrow morning, early doors... ...I've got a comedian coming round to my house to have a chat. And next week, I'll be back with you because I'm jumping on a train to outside of London. I can't say exactly where, but we've got to sit down with a brilliant, brilliant actor. So, until next week. Yeah, the countdown has begun. God, this has got so much more weight, knowing that we've only got a few more weeks of this. But hopefully this is going to keep you company between Christmas shopping and arguments around Christmas. Okay, we're here to keep you warm. Until then, I've been Craig Parkinson. He's been producer Griff. And this has been the first of the last of the Two Shot podcast. I'll see you next week. The Two Shot Podcast was presented by me, Craig Parkinson. Recorded and produced by Thomas Griffin for Splicing Block. The remix of our theme tune is by Stolen Valor. Cheers.